Welcome to Season 2 of our Reimagined Mental Health Podcast Series, brought to you by Investec Life. This season, we aim to delve even deeper into the complex issues of mental health and wellness, bringing you real-life stories of South Africans, their struggles, and importantly, their victories. We also hear from the experts and professionals as they weigh in, sharing thoughtful guidance and advice. Jason Goliath is a household name in South Africa. For most of us, we know you as the person who makes us laugh. We know you as the person who makes us almost take stock through our laughter of some really, really serious moments and bringing light and laughter to our lives as South Africans. But Jason, it hasn't always been like that for you. And there were some moments in your life that were actually quite dark. So before I start crying over dark moments, let me say thank you for that beautiful introduction. Uh, household name is the nicest thing you've ever said to me, and I, I appreciate it deeply. I hope that it's true and not just you're not just saying that to get me to answer these uh, questions, but you're right. I feel like I'm in the happiest space I've ever been, and I feel like I attribute that to the fact that I've had a lot of unhappy spaces. So today I've been doing comedy for just over 12 years, and I feel like 12 years is the 10,000-hour equivalent. I grew up in El Dorado Park, both of my parents from Durban. Unbelievable parents. Mom was just the hardest working, wisest person with a standard eight I've ever met. Just full of knowledge and love and positivity and just, you know, always told me I was beautiful. My dad is lovely, but when he's not drinking, loves the bottle. Still an alcoholic. Sorry, dad, but I mean, we open about this. We in a wonderful space of acceptance finally, but that made it very, very difficult. My parents got divorced twice while I was growing up and that, that led to... To each other. Yes. Yeah. No judgment, mom. But yes, so twice from each other for for and that's that's a, a story I think I think for another day. But I think what that meant is I've just had to be an adult from kind of the age of nine, I've kind of being the man of the house, and that came with its own set of pressures. But it also kind of inspired me to want to be great, and 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 my twenties were filled with this optimism because you know if you'd asked me as a teenager what do you want to what do you want to be when you grow up, my answer was very simple: I want to be rich. That that was it. I thought that money would equal happiness, and I spent my my twenties kind of almost obsessing over this formula that I thought would. Be be the thing that I would live my life around and it was success equals happiness. The more successful I became, the happier I would be because from my ignorant perception, the more money you had, the more happy you could be. I just didn't see people that didn't miss debit orders as unhappy. It was a, a very ignorant thing. Started my career as a rock star. I was the youngest leveled marketing in, in MassMart history. I became a marketing manager of a macro branch at uh, the age of 21 and it was this wonderful thing because all my friends that stayed in varsity were still driving city golfs and I had a car allowance and bought my first BMW instead of a house. So not the smartest man in the room, but you know, it is what it is. And then at 25, I started uh, in insurance and uh, was lured in by, you know, great promises of, of great fortunes. And uh, in 2006, I got an opportunity to start my own business and, and open a, a franchise of one of the big, well, you know, under one of the big insurers. And we then, you know, you know, converted that into a, into a brokerage. And then 2008 came. And if you were, you know, doing business in 2008, you know that it was a, a very similar to what the economic climate is right now, actually. And tough, tough times. You learn in tough, tough times that uh, if you own an insurance business, that South Africans would much rather pay for their DSTV than their life cover. They'd rather keep the kids entertained in the short term than, you know, protect them in the event of, of something terrible happen. And that was that was life. My business started folding in 2008. I should have let it go. But if you've ever run a business, you know that your first business particularly is like your child. And uh, I should have closed the business in 2008 when the trouble started. But we eventually hit rock, rock, rock bottom kind of at the beginning of 2010. And then I, I lost everything. 
And and when I say I lost everything, I think because of my sum, success equals happiness, my confidence was also linked to my, my bank balance. You know, when I had money, I was very confident. And when I didn't, I, I kind of felt like that was my identity and, and didn't know what to do. And I think that that lack of confidence, you know, led to all sorts of things. My the, Who I thought was the love of my life cheats on me and leaves me for my best friend. What was worse was losing him. Weirdly, it felt like, you know, the, the, the deeper betrayal. But I was in a space where my identity, which I'd linked to money, had been stripped away. I was deeply embarrassed in all of my social and business circles because I felt like, you know, things had been going on behind my back for years and nobody said anything. And I just found myself in the space of being 30 years old and useless. Like, and, I, and I can't explain it any better than that. I remember I'm, I'm 30 years old and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm living in my mom's house and my mom's leaving 10 rand next to my bed in the morning because she just feels like, you know, a man needs to be able to buy himself a pie or a Coke or at least have something to get through it. And I just felt like I was such a burden. This woman had sacrificed sacrificed everything for me and here at 30 I'm still a burden and it was at that point that I kind of figured I think it would just be easier for everybody if I just got out the way because I'm such a I'm such a failure and and I think you know one of the things that kind of pulled me around there was the fact that you know I couldn't do that to my mom I, I, my mom had had a, a best friend when she was slightly younger that had lost a son and, and I saw her deteriorate I saw this woman never recover and never go back to her former self just the grief was too much and I couldn't do that to my mom and then I found stand-up comedy which was the best thing that ever happened to me and comedy just quickly helped me to switch the sum and, and not switch it entirely but just helped me read it different so instead of you know focusing like my 20s success equals happiness, I realized that if success equals happiness, then happiness must equal success. And I've spent my 30s and now into my 40s chasing the happy. And by my own definition, the happier I become, the more successful I must be. I feel like kind of that's the way that's the way it's been so making money a byproduct and making my objectives and my passion the focus best thing that's ever happened to me and that's my whole story I feel like we're done I can go not quite it's, it's some story <laughs> it's some story though Jason and I want to take you back a little bit first mm. of all I want to say thank you for sharing that with us pleasure thank you so much because I think we find ourselves in a space where we've got to have this appearance of success absolutely and it's a constant keeping up with the Sitoles and the Joneses constantly. Hey, those Sitoles, man, they put us under pressure, those Yeah, the Motsepas, as we say in South Africa. <laughs> um, so I want to take you back a little bit because mm. speaking so openly about this, has it been empowering for you? And have you found that along the way you've been able to hopefully help and inspire other people who have found themselves in that dark place with the 10 rand next to their bed? Look, ab- absolutely. It's been empowering. It's been inspiring. But it's also help me achieve a fearlessness that I think is directly linked to understanding what I should actually fear and, and, and you know, what I what, what should excite me, what I should think is important. And I, I'm in this space where, you know, I think the kids call it woke, where all of a sudden you kind of realize, and I think COVID just helped really seat me in that mindset where you, you kind of realize that, A, nobody's coming to save you. B, your self-love, your self-motivation, your confidence, all of that stuff's on you. It's nobody else's responsibility to do their stuff. And I've honestly spent the last 12 years falling in love with myself, uh, which I think has been the, the, the best part of my life. But that's a gift because uh, we're very hard on ourselves, I think, generally as people. Yes. More so than we are with others. That's a great gift. Did you ever speak to your mom? Did you ever speak to those around you about this very, very dark place that you were in? Or did you pull yourself out? 
So, man, it was weird. You know, I was the guy that people called when they when they were down. And quite frankly, because I was so so much that guy within my circle, nobody believed me. So I think, you know, because I was living with my mom at the time and we were like, you know, we, we talked about it and made it like we were roommates. We had we had lots of conversations and it, it definitely broke her heart. But there was no way I could share with her just how close to giving up I, I, I was simply because I didn't think that she deserved that. She'd had a hard life, her entire life. And... Uh, you know, it was this weird thing where, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, but the priest, when she was much younger, taped a thorn with red tape, I'll never forget it, in, in the back of her Bible. And I one day asked her, I said, why is this thorn taped in here? And, 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 and she said, it's to remind me that I've got a burden and I'm praying for this burden. And one day when, you know, this burden is lifted, I can, I can remove this thorn. And psychologically, what that did to me as a kid is my whole life, I was like, you mustn't add another thorn. Your mom's already got a thorn. She's already giving you everything. You mustn't add an, another thorn. You said, I never told my mom how close I got. Yeah. How close did you get? <sighs> Man, I, I, I got closer than, I, I got, I got closer than I, 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 I hope anybody on earth never gets that close. So, you know, I'd, I'd kind of thought about it. I knew exactly how I would do it. It, this was, you know, I remember they, they, they renovated the highways just before the 2010 World Cup. And before that, if you remember, like the N1 kind of between Marisburg Road and William Nickel, there was no center median. It was just grass. And I thought, I mean, I could just hit a bridge. Everybody knew I loved speeding. Um, and everybody always would, you know, was always not surprised when I ended up in an accident because I've always, I've always loved, uh, you know, driving recklessly um, at 120 at all at all times. Never obeying all never the rules of the road. Speed. Yeah, of course, I never. I mean, I just would get to 120 very quickly. Um, but I thought that that's that's the way I would do it. You know, just drive into a bridge and let it be quiet and allow myself to exit. But you managed through all of that, despite these suicidal thoughts that you had, mm. to say, my mother actually needs me, I can't do this to her. And once I did that, then the, your choice is clear. So I, I've always had a gift of not being on the fence. And then you must decide. You know, I, 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 later on, I, I would the, the, the phrase would be, decide and dala, decide and do. So me just one day having a conversation with myself going, are you going to do this? No, you can't because of your mom. Well, if you can't do this, then what are you going to do? And then, you know, I kind of had nothing, which I think made me a very dangerous man. If I look at my trajectory in, in stand-up comedy and the trajectory of Goliath and Goliath, it, was, it, it came from a man with nothing to lose. Those risks I took, those decisions I took, the bravery on stage. When you've, you know, when you've got no stakes, then you, you can take blows. If you do it right, you become invincible. So I thought I'd do acting and presenting. I'd, I'd been a casino host on the microphone for a while and had met a wonderful man named Pedro Magos. And Pedro said to me, Bra, I'm registered opening an agency called Legends. Why don't you come register with the agency and just see what happens? I registered with the agency and it was unbelievable. My hit rate was one in two, which if, you, if you're if you an artist and you go to auditions... That's brilliant. To get one in two was ridiculous. And it was, it was you know, it got to a point where I would walk into auditions and people would already want to leave because they're like, oh, I mean, if this guy's here, he's obviously going to get it. He's on everything. And then I did a big Casalaga and I met a guy who's now one of my best friends in the world, Serving Gacy. My best friend, Serving Gacy, because he'll complain in the comments. We shoot for five days and at the end of these five days they say to me brah 
why don't you try stand-up comedy? You've been making us laugh all week. You're hilarious. And I go, look, I'm bright funny. I'm not funny, like, on stage. I'm funny I'm funny with the friends. And Siv gave me the best advice that any friend had ever given me up, up, up to that point. He said, but relax, guy. I'm not saying you're going to be the next Trevor Noah. I'm saying you obviously love making people laugh. Try stand-up comedy as a hobby. And, uh, you know, a couple of months later, I had a conversation with Nicholas Goliath about the conversation that I'd had with Siv. And, and Nick was so interested. And, and we had had a lot of beers. It was a Mother's Day celebration. And uh, Nicholas made a made a call and booked us an open spot. And I still, you know, credit Nicholas with the, the best decision I never made for myself. And he didn't give me a choice. He was like, oh, they gave me a hard time to make this booking on the phone because I said to him, what are you talking about? And he said, no, we spoke about it yesterday. I said, I was drunk. We don't make deals over Black Label. It's in the contract. You know what I mean? And he said, no, bro, I've made, a, I made this thing. We've got six weeks. And we better come up with material in 100%. six weeks. So I said to him, dude, tell your wife we're going to the Underground, which was the greatest comedy club of all time in South Africa. We're going to the Underground every Sunday from now on so we can at least get a feel, 3rd of November 2011, Nicholas and I both had our sort of first times and I felt my life change. Sure. I felt, I, f- I felt, I felt it seat. You know the the the, the click when you. I'm a car guy, so let but me. But you know, that. I've actually got a shiver as you the, said that. No, but that's. Uh, I it, actually I got a shiver on my it. body. Like it's seated, like you know, when you're turning your your your, your petrol tank nozzle, that that the thing, and it goes click 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 click, and it's finally in its spot. I felt my life click, and it was this unbelievable feeling of oh my god I've got to work as hard as I can to do this as much as possible because comedy was the best thing I'd ever done the best thing I'd ever done I'd ever experienced still didn't register that I would be able to do it as a as a career but I felt the breath you know the the Stella waiting to exhale I exhaled on the 3rd of July 2011 Sure. I love that. Jason, thank you for sharing your story with us. It is very powerful and very deeply moving. Uh, thank you. Uh, with us today as well in our podcast studio, we've got uh, senior psychologist Andrew Martin. And Andrew, I want to bring you in at this point. You've heard Jason's story. You've heard how in the depths of despair, the suicidal ideation that he had, yet he pulled himself out, his life clicked and next to me is this what appears to be and I don't know you at yeah. all but what appears to be a very happy and content man yeah and I couldn't be happier for you Jason Thank I think you. Uh, I consider myself very privileged to do what I do on a daily basis I meet many many men similar to Jason's yeah. story and I never become desensitized because it's amazing the attempts that are made throughout life for these men to find that purpose yeah. And I think men are in a bit of a predicament if you think about modern society. There's a lot of shifts and changes and there's a lot of narratives there. And it's an epidemic of just catastrophic proportion. I think men are are lost. I think they're afraid to take up their place in society because of history. Yeah. Because they're afraid of being too aggressive, too assertive, to take a stand. And so there are men all over the place in the margins. And I get the privilege of meeting some of them. And I do incredibly impactful work on the basis of them leaning into the support. I only meet them because they volunteer and I can only imagine how many people don't. And we yeah. know the statistics. We know yeah. how reluctant men are to seek healthcare. It's not something that's hidden. We know exactly how hard it is for a man to put it, put his hand up and say, I'm struggling. Yeah. Because that's an admission of weakness, hey, initially. Absolutely. But in that vulnerability is the ultimate strength. This is where I want to bring Sinanklankla in. Sinanklankla Sitomo is the head of insurance business at Investec Life. And we've been having many conversations in season one. So you're not new to this podcast. Welcome back. But Essen, one of the things that you had raised repeatedly and one of the reasons that Investec is doing this is the stigma attached to mental health issues. And we see it particularly when we talk about men and their deep, dark struggles. Yes, that's 100% uh, accurate. Because I think no matter how many factors you look at when it comes to mental health challenges, 
stick mark still sticks out as one of the issues that we we encounter when it comes to dealing with it. So whatever solutions you've got, stick mark is always a roadblock. So I think for us as investors, we're saying we have to talk about it. We are a corporate. We've got a voice. We've got we can create a platform where we can talk about these lived experiences. And I think that's for me is exactly what you're doing. I think when you started our focus on mental health, we didn't know the answers, mm. but we're also accepting that let's push ahead because we know it's something important. And for me, it touches very, very well into our core purpose as investor as an organization. We're a global organization, yet we still believe we're a responsible uh, corporate citizen. And what that means is that we believe that we live in society, not of it. And mental health is one of the things that touches all the people that we interact with. Our staff, for example, is where mental health is our big focus. Yeah. Our clients that we, we give exceptional service, mental health is a big ask. Communities we work in, I mean, to have someone like Jason, for me, who's got a voice, who makes us laugh as a community, as a community but to hear the men behind, mm. the, 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 who make us laugh for me is quite exceptional. It's quite exceptional. And for me, through that process, we are tackling the stigma. We're making it acceptable to speak about it. And I'm hoping and I'm wishing that men will be listening to the podcast and they realize that you are not weak. And you're also not alone. You're not alone. Yes, yes. And I think one of the stories for me that really touched me or what Jason was talking about is coming out of that moment of darkness. That spark, that moment you feel and you see that spark that brings a light. I think for me, it's that moment at which every South African will experience at some point in their lives. So the name of today's podcast is Mindful Masculinity. And I wanted to ask a question about societal expectations of masculinity and if this has such a severe impact on how men function and then the dysfunction when they're so unwell but feel like they can't speak out or that they're drowning and there's nobody to hear them. I want to start with Jason first. Did you feel that there was a level of your masculinity that you couldn't betray almost by speaking up in that moment or seeking help? So I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd, if I'd phrase it as betray, but I, I definitely felt that there was a disappointment in terms of, you know, as a man who, you know, was, you know, considered himself an entrepreneur and I always presented well and I was always doing exciting things. I think there was almost, it felt like there was an expectation for you just to consistently always do well and not have problems and, and just be fine all the time. Uh, so, so for me, it was not so much a betrayal, but a, a disappointment. I, I don't know if I'm articulating that properly. Andrew? So men tend to internalize a lot of their sadness, a lot of their disappointments, frustrations, and they never get that chance to find a way to get that expressed. So there's a lot of repression at a young age, and they carry that with them as if it's the badge of masculinity, that we suffer in silence, we do what needs to be done, we provide, we protect, we support. We get on with it. And I think that's where the problem starts coming in, is men learn to not trust their own sensations and feelings. And then it has to manifest somehow. It doesn't just disappear. This is energy in motion. That's what emotion means. It's got to go somewhere, and often it transforms into anger. And this is why we see the problems manifesting in domestic abuse, in substance abuse, to try and quell Mm. that ignition of energy without that outlet that actually satisfies what the emotion is trying to tell them in the first place. Sinaclinkla, I'd like to come back to you. When we talk about reaching crisis point, is that the time that you're seeing an increase perhaps in inquiries or is that the time when people retreat and men in particular? When are you seeing this kind of movement towards you, your products and how it could potentially help both them and their families? I mean, Kate, we, we work in an industry, in the life insurance industry, where we jump in in a crisis mode. We jump in because there's a death. We jump in because someone is disabled or someone has been diagnosed with a specific dread disease. We never really proactively engage and be there. And that's what I think for me is quite important as an industry when it comes to mental health. 
at least mental health, and then we can branch out to other conditions where we could be proactively engaging with our clients, but with society in general. And and because through that, you're actually becoming much more proactive in managing your risks as a business. You're not just waiting for the claims. Someone once said that actually as an insurer, you sell a policy and then you hope that your your, your client's going to speak to you so far in the future and all that because, they, because they're cancelling the policy or they're dead. What of the two? I don't think that's the right way to do going forward. I think for me, it's engaging continuously with your clients because through those engagements, you know where to support them and how to support them and something like a mental health can be used to avoid some of the consequences. What we see in the life insurance space, specifically in South Africa, men have got about four times death by suicide in terms of the rates compared to women. And what's interesting, Elon, just for us, we see the consequences, but all the factors are driving that. And that for me, I think we need to be able to proactively manage that. And if we can jump in much earlier, that can be always be beneficial to the industry. Do you think that that suicide rate is linked to our relationship with money? The reason I say this is, is I had a chat with a friend recently who got news of a suicide a couple of days before his debit orders were going to go off. And he said when he got the news, uh, he said, yeah, he can understand why that bra did that and, and took that way out. And at least he's out of this rat race that we're all in. And I only had an opportunity to speak to him a week later and, and really ask him if he's okay. Um, and when I did get the opportunity, he said, nah, bro, if, if, if I'd found out today, a couple of days after payday, when the stress is off me, I feel like that guy took the easy way out. And for me, that is just such a big red flag in terms of this, this man that I'm talking to is in no way suicidal. But this man that I'm speaking to has so much month in pressure on him that it changes the way he receives, perceives, translates, and even acts in, in certain instances. So I, I feel like, like our relationship with money as men and this, uh, you know, we, my great friend Joey Razdin does a, a comedy set on the scarf theorem and how scarf possibly is the new Maslow, where under Maslow, food is the basic human need. Under scarf, status is the basic human need. So people will change their behavior for status. And and if you look at how status-driven our society is, I mean, I, I went out, it was... Nick's, Nicholas Goliath's birthday the other day and uh, you know he, some of his mates arranged the dinner and we went out and I, I'm 42 so I'm the guy that's now asking the DJ why is it so loud bra? can we just reduce the volume I can't hear people talking so I was in one of those loud environments and it was just every table had bottles on them every table was flexing on the table next to them if the table next to them ordered shooters then they'd order even better shooters and there's this constant race and my brain is going okay but who's catching the ball for all of these crazy things and why are we under pressure why am I under pressure. I've decided that in order to have certain things, I've got to let certain things go. And then I see people still putting them under pressure or putting themselves under pressure to kind of achieve all of these wonderful things that we can post and say and brag about. Love what you're talking about, Jason. The flexing, the societal, the status. You said the word red flags. Andrew? Very quickly, the red flags that we need to look out for here, particularly when it comes to men and this pressure. I think when it comes down to red flags, one thing I want to look out for is obviously deviation from the norm. You know the people in your life. If he starts showing up slightly differently, you'll you'll look for like low-level irritability is usually how depression manifests in men rather than women. They're not going to cry at their desks. Yeah. You're going to see them become short, yeah. decline meeting invites, not answer their phone, not respond to WhatsApps. That's going to be a red flag when they start pulling themselves away from communities that are usually very integral to being part of. And maybe communities is where they need to lean back into. And I want to encourage any men that if you do feel marginalized and isolated, make that call. WhatsApp your friend. We don't initiate as well as women. Just put yourself out there. You have no idea what will happen after that. Andrew Martin, thank you so much for your guidance. Jason, I felt my life click is what you said. And I got a cold shiver. I hope your life continues to click. Can I, can I just say, because I, I feel like I was robbed if I didn't say it. The work starts when you hear the click.
There's no time in your life that it's going to click and all of a sudden depression is no longer going to be a threat, anxiety is going to be a stranger. Once it clicks, you must understand that happiness is the hardest thing you'll ever work for. So once you hear the click, uh, reinforcing every single day your why, reinforcing every day where you are in your journey in terms of what your progress is, being able to wake up in a space of gratitude first for what you've overcome before you allow the stresses of what you haven't achieved yet to be part of your daily process. Once you click and you find your thing, be prepared to work even harder to fight to remain in that space because it's it's so easy to shift out or, or, or have a life event happen that knocks you back off trail. And I'm always conscious that the world, unfortunately, as much as it's always helping me, if my mindset is not right, it's so easy to take the wrong off-ramp and head back down the wrong road and not even be aware of it. You're a superstar. Those are wonderful words thank of you. wisdom. I thank all three of you. This has been a really, really powerful podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for joining us on today's Reimagined Mental Health Podcast. Our hope is that by talking openly about these crucial aspects of human experience, we not only enhance our own mental health, but also promote a culture of compassion, understanding and collective healing in our communities and our societies. This brings us to the end of today's episode of our Reimagined Mental Health series, brought to you by Investec Life, an authorised FSP and licensed insurer. If you would like to listen to the next episode, please subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, from me, Katie Katapodis, and the Investec Life team, goodbye. <laughs>